All right, why don't we go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Gospel of John, chapter 6. We've been in a series uh, going through this great entire book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Um, and I want to just kind of give a quick little uh, caveat going on into this morning. Um, one of the things that we do, if you guys don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get your Bible. That as we go through the books of the Bible, uh, it forces us to basically cover every single passage. This is really awesome when it comes to covering great passages like we read last week, which was Jesus walking in water. And, you know, I enjoyed uh, not only studying for that, reading that, preaching it, all the above. Um, but then it also forces us to sometimes have to face and read passages that are a little bit confusing or lengthy or hard or dense. Um, and here's, here's the thing. Why I like going this route is because it, we, the agenda is set not by the pastor, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a good thing, especially if the pastor wants to keep things focused on Jesus. It can be a really bad thing if the pastor is an agenda-focused type of a guy, right? Girl, whatever, you know, whoever's preaching, whatever. But the big idea is that that may not be the best thing because what Scripture does is it forces us to basically cover everything, which means the text sets the agenda. It sets the agenda, which means we come, hopefully, with ears that are perked up and wanting to hear and learn what God has to speak to us. And this happens to be one of those passages today that is dense, that's lengthy, um, but I, I truly believe uh, could be extremely life-giving if we come with ears to hear. And I want to pray for us before we even jump in, because just like any time that we read Scripture and hear a sermon or listen to a message or a podcast or something like that, that's going to be Scripture-focused, Um Really, the issue is not so much the message that we're going to be hearing. It's our heart and the type of receptivity that it brings forth. Jesus would give the analogy of like soil. Our hearts are like soil. So sometimes if you listen to a Bible study or a sermon or whatever, and you're like, I never get anything out of this. And it may, we might be tended, tempted to think it's the preacher. And look, I'm, I'm not telling you you got a great preacher. preacher you get what you pay for. Um, but the point of the matter is, is, is that really what's more important is the heart that is going to receive the message, the, the word that is going forth will always bear forth fruit based upon the type of soil. So your heart is the soil. The question is, is what type of condition is the heart, is the soil of your heart in? Is it prepped? Is it ready? Will it receive? Is it hard? Is it stony? Is it calloused? That's the big issue here. So I'm going to pray over us this morning that we would have hearts that are open and receptive to all that God has. And uh, at the same time, I'll pray that the preacher would do a fairly decent job. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your great love, your kindness, your goodness. So we come to you this morning, God, with, with expectant hearts. Um, God, you know the weeks that we've had, the days that we've had, the hours that we've had, the challenges that we face, the burdens that we bring, the troubles that we carry. Um, you know the types of temptations we are faced with. And God, we come this morning just in this little window of time. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Uh, and God, help me as a speaker, as a preacher, as a proclaimer, Lord, that you would give me the ability to articulate these things in a way that would just rightly reflect your heart. God, anything that I say that's not of you, anything that I say that's just more of a stumble, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, help me supernaturally to communicate the things that are on your heart, on your agenda here this morning, we pray. And so we entrust all things in your care. We thank you for your deep love commitment to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. All right, you guys ready? All right, 
before we jump in, I want to just basically give a quick little intro to all of this. And then we're going to read through this entire passage. And if you're trying to figure out where we're at, we're going to be taking a look at John chapter 6, verse 25 through 59. Again, it's very lengthy. We'll go through all of it, and hopefully it will be of encouragement to you. It, it is dense, as I mentioned. Um, but here's the thing. When God gave the Israelites a symbol to represent or remind them of the deliverance in the Old Testament, what did he give them? Passover bread. When God provided for the nation... Uh, that was still wandering through the wilderness, trying to make sense of who God was and make sense of their circumstances. What did God give them as a means of provision? Manna, right. God gave them bread from heaven. When Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by the devil to basically deny God and to make bread. Turn these rocks, these stones into bread. On the night prior to Jesus' crucifixion, he broke bread with his disciples. And he said to them, he said, this is my body given for you. In the book of Revelation, there's an image that's set before uh, those that have ears to hear and eyes to see uh, this, what's described as the marriage of heaven and earth, this feast. In other words, the healing of all the cosmos, the thing that our heart aches for. And if you aren't aching for that, you're not paying attention to the pain that's in this world. You're not paying attention to the loss, the tragedy, the murders, the death, the horror, the hardships. The, the cries, the grief, the pain that's happening in our world today. Um, the, the promise of Scripture is that God will one day take this world that is suffering under the weight of pain and hardship and sorrow and grief, and he will set all things right. And the analogy or the image that's given to describe this is that a, a feast that invites all heaven and earth. No doubt, no doubt there's baked goods there. Baked bread, right? Fresh, hot, sourdough, baked bread. No doubt about that. So the idea, the imagery of the concept of bread is ubiquitous throughout Scripture from start all the way to the very end. Bread becomes sort of the central theme that we'll be looking at here today. So what I want to do today, I'm just going to give you three things we'll take a look at. We'll go through them one by one. Uh, we'll take a look at, number one, the sign. Number two, we'll take a look at the bread. Number three, we'll take a look at the meal. So the sign, the bread, and the meal. And we will get to work taking a look at this entire passage. So let's first of all begin to take a look at this idea of the sign, the concept of this entire chapter. So if you remember several weeks ago, if you uh, go back in your memory banks, that we started this entire chapter, begins with a, a miracle where Jesus converts or transforms a little boy's lunch to feed 5,000 people. And this is the basic scenario that's taking place. So what I want to, I'll come back to that in just a moment here, but I want to first of all make a distinction between a sign versus a miracle. Because sometimes you guys read the Bible and you see there's Jesus performs signs and miracles or signs and miracles or signs and wonders. And what does that mean? It's, we oftentimes just think they're one and the same. And they're actually not one and the same. So a sign versus a miracle. So a miracle is basically a supernatural event or action that usually sets something right. So, you know, a person is sick or they have a malady or they're dead. Jesus performs a miracle and raises them from the dead. Now, the idea of a sign is a sign is not always necessarily a miracle. A miracle can be a sign, but a sign is not always necessarily a miracle. So a sign is, unlike a miracle, is an event or a symbol that points beyond itself to something else. I'll give you an example. If you want, you can turn there or write these down in your notes. Joshua chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I'll just read a couple little passages here. It says that 
God tells uh, Joshua, and Joshua then tells the people, he says, take 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan. Now, now Joshua was bringing the people of Israel out of the wilderness into the promised land. And before that, they crossed uh, this Jordan River. And so as they went through the Jordan River on dry ground, which is, again, kind of a, uh, a wink, wink back to the actual celebration where they went through the Red Sea, this was God's another means of miraculous provision. So there's a miracle that's going on here, but this miracle is going to be connected to a sign. So uh, what Joshua Joshua does is he tells them, take 12 stones out of the middle of the Jordan, lay them down in the place where you dwell, according to the number of your tribes. So there's 12, right? And then he goes on to say in verse 6, so that this may be a sign for you among you. So that then later generations come along, they're like, hey, mom, dad, why are there 12 stones sitting right here at the edge of the city? And so then that, this becomes kind of a teachable moment. Oh, hey, by the way, why there's 12 stones there is because God miraculously brought you out of the wilderness on into the, the this promised land. So in other words, it becomes a sign that points back to this miracle of God's provision. So hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Entering back into the story, we see Jesus using this uh, sign of the bread. Now, take a look at uh, John chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. I'll just kind of make mention of these. Jesus sat with his disciples. That Another little detail to the story, that the Passover was at hand. This is significant. Verse 5, it says, seeing that there's a large crowd, Jesus then said to Philip, one of the disciples, he says, where are we going to go buy bread for, to feed this amount of people? Uh, Philip lived in that particular city. Jesus turns to him and like, where are the local eateries that are going to supply enough food for all of these people? Philip's kind of freaking out, like, I don't, I don't know, like, we, our, our city is like 200 people, and there's like 20,000 people, I don't think anybody has enough food to be able to feed all these people, and then verse 6 tells us this little important thing, he said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do, Jesus is basically testing Philip, saying, I know what I'm going to do, I already know what I'm going to do, but I'm just asking you, I'm asking you, do you trust me, are you with me on this? And then it goes on to say, skip on down to John chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. Uh, when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments. Verse 13, they gathered 12 baskets. Now, whatever it is about these 12 baskets. Now, again, if you want to pause and fast forward in your mind, if maybe you're familiar with another story where Jesus feeds what's commonly known as the 4,000. Uh, this particular next feeding even though it's not in the story here, happens in Gentile territory. After that, guess how many fragments of bread was brought up from there? It's actually seven. So what we have is this miracle of the seven and the miracle of the 12. What's going on here? Because whatever's going on here is so significant, this is a quote-unquote sign. It's such an important sign. Verse 14 tells us that when the people saw this sign, sign of what? Twelve baskets taken up of bread. They immediately said to one another, this is the prophet that's coming to this world. So what? So whatever the 12 baskets of bread that were taken up, um, it immediately became a signpost pointing beyond the event, beyond the miracle to realize, cause them to realize like, that God is doing something. So what's happening here? The best way I would describe it is this. Jesus is basically retelling the Exodus story on how God provided for the 12 tribes. 12 tribes. Why 12 baskets? 12 tribes. Why seven baskets in the feeding of the 4,000? Well, in the Old Testament, the nations that were considered the Gentile nations on the other side of the Jordan or the other side of the river, uh, they were known as the seven. What's God saying here? What's the sign? The sign is God is moving. And the way that God is moving, bringing forth provision for both 
Jews and Gentiles alike, is through Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes to feed those that are hungry. It's beautiful, right? You guys, you guys doing okay? Following along? That was the easy part. You guys ready? Now we're going to get to work. Let's move on now to the retelling, uh, the idea of the bread. So again, just in summary of the first one, Jesus is retelling the Exodus story of how God provided for the 12 tribes, but ultimately with a little bit of a shift. The little bit of a shift is that he places himself at the center of the midst of their disorienting hunger to provide life-giving bread. In other words, to provide himself as the life-giving sustenance. Do you realize how bold of a claim this is? Bold claim. Uh, just in case you are thinking Jesus is a non-controversial figure, uh, wait till we keep reading because it will sh- he will shock you. In fact, by the time we get to the end of this chapter, which we will not do today, there are, he, Jesus is so offensive that Jesus actually turns to his own disciples and like, are you guys offended of me? Do you want to leave? You're more than welcome to. So let's jump back in and begin to take a look at the idea of the bread. All right, here we go. Let's jump back into the story. Verse 25, um, I'm going to basically give you one of six, or this is like number one of six little movements that we will kind of make our way through, paragraphs or scenes that we will make our way through. So hold on, buckle up, and we will have fun reading this. All right, here we go. Number one, John chapter 6, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? How did you get, get here? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you're, you are not seeking me because you saw signs. Remember, you saw the sign, miracle distinction, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So in other words, what we see Jesus here doing is basically calling them out. He's like, look, you guys are following me, not because of me. You guys are following me because of what I can produce and provide for you. You're hungry. I get it. You're hungry. But you're coming after me for physical food, nourishment. That when that nourishment passes, you'll go on into another phase of getting hungry again, right? Um, it's just called life. We eat and then we get hungry again. That's repeat. That's the way life is. And what Jesus is saying is that, what I'm inviting you to is not just to be the receptors of a miracle. Don't go just chasing after the miraculous. Follow me. I am the one that will give you every single thing that you need. Let's skip on down. So verses 28 and 29, we'll actually return back to that at the very end. So let's skip on down to verse 30. And then he said to him, so this is movement number two. He said to them, what sign do you do so that we may believe in you? The work, what work do you perform? Our fathers, they ate manna in the wilderness as it was written. And they read, recite a scripture from the Old Testament. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What do we call this bread? Manna, right. Uh, verse 32, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses that gave you the bread from heaven, but it was my father that gives you the true bread from heaven. So again, he kind of makes a little bit of a distinction. You guys are claiming that it was Moses that gave you bread. Moses was just nothing more than a mere uh, a tool. He was, a, he was an instrument in the hands of God. Like, God is the one that provided the the provision. It was, just, it was all about God. This is an important thing to just consider, because I think it's really easy, especially in today's culture, where we have a culture today, if you haven't noticed, in Christianity, and it's honestly, it's, it's a disease. I'm going to call it what it is. It's a disease in Western evangelical circles that tends to try to create um, influencers out of pastors. Like, 
elevate them to such a degree, such a level to where they're like godlike celebrity status. It is a disease. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a twofold tango that ends up happening. Number one, it's fueled by the ego of the leader, the ego of the leader who wants to be identified and recognized in the celebrity status. But it also, there's blame, I believe, on behalf of the people because they give money towards these ministries. They organize this type of stuff. They retweet this stuff. It feeds the ego. And what ends up happening, you have this situation where it looks like that it's not God doing the work, it's the person that's doing the work. And that's, that's just all sorts of problematic going on right there. Because when that person falls and when they fail, and then we've seen this scandal happen on repeat over and over and over again in the past you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and it just devastates the whole Christian world. And it's, it's, it's all based upon this idea of really shifting the idea of the concept of who is in charge. Like, what is, what's happening here? Is this God? Is this a human being? Can this be human generated? Or is this something that God alone does? And so what Jesus is basically doing is setting kind of a little bit of a decimal point correction saying, it's not Moses that does this, or that did this. It was just God that did this. Verse 33, then he said, for the bread uh, of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. And then they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst again. Uh, this is what's commonly known as one of seven I am statements of Jesus. I say this in air quotes. I am. Uh, the name of God in the Old Testament. When Moses comes to God and says, you know, God, you're sending me on this you know, grand mission grand journey to go represent you before pharaoh and who who when if pharaoh asks me who sent you who authorized you to stand before me with such you know power and might and miracles and and god tells moses just tell him i am that i am sent you okay hey by the way i am sent you sent me to go do this but then jesus picks up this 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 uh this title for himself, I am, and he says seven times on repeat throughout the Gospel of John, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and life. He says this seven, seven times. But on this particular note, he wants to make this distinction, this connection between himself and this idea of bread. Bread that brings life. And again, Jesus summarized in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever shall come to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Again, Jesus is making very clearly, I am the provision of God and all who partake of me will not hunger or thirst again. What's Jesus suggesting here? I think what he's saying is that there's a common need for all human beings. You can describe this however you would like. You can put this in psychological terms, in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or all the way to just the world in which we live in, where we have needs and desires that we want to try to satisfy. But the fact of the matter is, is that every single deep longing desire that we have will never ultimately bring us to full, complete satisfaction because we will hunger again. I mean, if you think of it this way, no amount of money, honor, affirmation, body augmentations, sexual encounters, psychedelic drugs, nothing will ultimately fully satisfy. It's not a buy-in once and you're all good to go for the rest of your life. You need it on repeat over and over and over again because it will never fully satisfy. C.S. Lewis who described this in one of his writings. He says, you know, if, if, if we find in us a desire that's not being met in this world, 
In other words, you know, we, we, we have this deep inner itch that we're trying really hard to find satisfaction for. He goes on to say, it must mean that we are made for another world. And yet the problem is we are trying to match our desires and longings with something or to pair it with something that this world cannot ever fully satisfy. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying the exact like connection to this is that I am the one. You trust me. You give your life to me. I am the one that will fully satisfy you. And those that have followed Jesus, they bear this to be true. I've told you this before, but when when I became a Christian, I was not a follower of the ways of Jesus before that. And I knew about God my whole life, but when I met Jesus, my life was changed. My life was made complete. My life was made whole. Do I have problems? Do I have hardships? Do I have moments where life... Absolutely. But at the very core of my being, I know who I am. I know whose I am. There's very, I'm not, I don't, I've been married for over 30 years. My wife is my partner in life, okay? But she is not my ultimate form of satisfaction. She would say the same thing. She cannot be. She does not have what it takes to fully satisfy me. There's nothing in this world that can fully, deeply impact and affect and bring life and transformation and completion in your heart in this life at all. But Jesus is saying, I can, and I will. And millions and millions and millions of followers of Jesus can bear testimony to this reality. So some here this morning might say, well, I don't know, I've never experienced that. And the question that we have to keep going back to is, have you truly tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Again, do have we matched our expectations to who Jesus truly is? Or are we oftentimes, again, there's, it's very tricky. Because we can oftentimes think of Jesus as a means to our ultimate end. In other words, if I pray enough, if I devote my life to Jesus enough, then maybe he'll give me a spouse. Maybe he'll give me that job. Maybe he'll help me graduate from school. Maybe he'll just take away this, this deep depression or anxiety that I've gone on. And then you trust Jesus and you realize, I still got anxiety. He doesn't work. <laughs> because you're using Jesus. Like, Jesus isn't just a, a, an instrument that we use. He's God. And it's about reorienting our lives totally, completely around who he is and what he claims to be. And this is, again, first and foremost, he wants us to see that he's this bread of life. Let's continue on. Third movement here, verse 36. He says, but I said to you, you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father has given me comes to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's important to just note that Jesus says, you know, sometimes in in our world today, people will say, I just have never seen Jesus. I've never heard Jesus. If I saw Jesus, if I heard Jesus, then I would believe. I just want to gently push back and say, no, you won't. Like, I mean, maybe you will. I don't want to be careful. Maybe, Maybe it will be the encounter for you that will change your life. But I would say in general, probably not. Because, how do I know this? Because you've got hundreds of people right here. They saw Jesus. They ate bread from his hand, for goodness sake, right? They hung out with Jesus. They were so close to Jesus, and yet they still did not believe. So as we go on, he goes on in verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, 
Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose anything of all that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. I like to think of what Jesus describes here in three different ways. Sustenance, satisfaction, and security. Sustenance, that Jesus will give you everything that you need. Everything that you need. Sometimes he gives us what we want. Sometimes he gives us what we want because he's a good God. He loves you. But there's, he will always give us what we need. Sometimes what we need is not what we think we really want, but it's the best thing for us. So sustenance, satisfaction. Again, we just kind of talked about this, that Jesus truly is all satisfying. And lastly, this idea of security. Sometimes people ask this question, can a Christian lose their salvation? I would like to suggest that this is the wrong question to ask. The better question I think Jesus is addressing here and is always based upon this particular question, upon this particular passage. Uh, can Jesus lose his own? Not this question of like, can a Christian lose his salvation? But can Jesus, does Jesus lose his own? <laughs> he just says right here, no, I, I won't lose anyone. Those that belong to me, I will never lose you. You might say, well, I've ran really, really far from Jesus. Jesus is faster. You say, I feel unseen. Jesus sees you. You say, I've sinned really bad. Jesus knows, and he's already made provision for you. You say, I don't feel very loved. Jesus loves you. These are the things that we see happening, that Jesus is wanting to remind those in this discourse that he's describing. Let's move on to the fourth little movement here. Verse 41, it says, Then... So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Um, Have you guys ever heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? So basically the big idea behind that is when we become overly familiar with something, we become more acquainted either not only with its flaws, but it becomes common to us. We become aware of its patterns or repeat cycles or habits and things of that nature. And what Jesus is saying here is that in this particular context, this is sort of his hometown. It's a home area. Everybody knew Jesus. And this is what they're essentially saying. We know his mom and dad. Like we know, we, we, we play little league with this guy. We know how he hits. Like, like there's no way he came down from heaven. We know his home. We know his address. We've watched him skateboard. Like this, there's no way Jesus is who he claims he could be. What's going on here? Overfamiliarity. They couldn't see the beauty, the impact, the power of Jesus. Um, I would suggest to you that especially if you're someone that has been raised or brought up in a Christian church, you went to Hume Lake when you were a kid, you said the Jesus prayer, you sang songs, you had youth leaders that you know their names, you have a Bible that's as long as you can ever imagine, that was a Bible somewhere on your shelf. Like, you are in the gravest danger of becoming overly familiar with Jesus. To where we just are not impressed by him. We're not in awe of him. Our heart doesn't come to life in worship and honor and affection and adoration of who he is because we're just familiar with these stories of Jesus, of what he did 2,000 years ago. It doesn't impact us. It doesn't shock us. It doesn't rock our worlds. It doesn't, it doesn't waken us to life. And the, the reality is that this is what was going on with these guys. And in this particular context, we're told that these were Jewish leaders, no doubt. It says that the Jews 
grumbled. And Jesus is going to address their grumbling. But I want to just uh, circle back to verse 43. Uh, so we'll take a look at the fifth movement here. And then Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Um, you got grumblers. You've got people that will believe in Jesus. And then those are the two major issues. That these complainers, what Jesus is addressing now in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up the last day. And this is kind of a repeated cycle that Jesus has been saying over and over and over again. It's the, his message. And sometimes you guys, I've had people tell me over the years, like, Brian, you just repeat yourself a lot. My wife says that. You repeat yourself. My kids tell me, Dad, you just repeat yourself. Look, I'm in good company. Jesus repeats himself. I'm just doing what Jesus does. Like, come on, guys, give me a break. But the point that I would make is this, is that Jesus keeps repeating himself over and over again and saying the same thing. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up the last day. It is written of the prophets that they will be all taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father has eternal life. And then in verse 48 says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they all died. You know, again, just going back to that generation, those that followed Yahweh out of Egypt throughout the wilderness, um, this is, you know, several hundred years later post that event. And Jesus says, look, they all ate manna. Like, they feasted off of what God gave them provisionally, but they all physically died. And what Jesus is saying here, I'm talking about a life that's more than biological life. We've talked about this throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus makes this distinction before, between two particular uh, Greek words, bios and zoe. Bios meaning biological life where your heart's beating, you have brain waves, and so on and so forth. Zoe life is a life that is something that is intangible. It, it, you, you are alive even though physically, biologically, you may be wasting away. We've all known people like this, people that are just physically wasting away. They've got a broken body. They've got issues uh, physically that they're dealing with, a bad back, whatever. And yet, internally, you sit down with them, and they are literally just this wellspring of life, of life. That's Zoe. That's Zoe. That's what they have. And Jesus is saying, I've come to give you this particular type of life. Verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they did, they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that uh, one may eat and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Wait, what? So if right now you're, like, shocked by this message of Jesus, that's okay, because everyone else was shocked, too. Like, is Jesus teaching cannibalism? I'll just, like, throw out the big E on the eye chart, address the big elephant in the room, because that's what it sounds like. Is Jesus going zombie apocalypse? What's happening when Jesus says, my body is the flesh, and unless you eat my body, you can have no part of me? So this was shocking. And again, remember, he's speaking to an audience of people that were Jewish. They didn't eat pork or blood let alone other people's bodies. So when Jesus comes on and says this, what in the world is he describing here? What is he talking about? Let me ask you a question here. Should we take the Bible literally? Just raise your hand if, if you think so. It's kind of a trick question. Raise your hand if you don't think we should take the Bible literally. Okay? All right, so here's what I want to suggest to you. So I, I, I get it. Most of you guys did not want to like voice your opinion. That's fine. I get it. Um, so here's the thing is that 
Sometimes in certain circles of religious groups, you have people that are like, you always have to take the Bible literally. And if you don't take the Bible literally, then you don't love Jesus. You don't love God. You're going to go to hell. You have others that are just like, well, you know, maybe you don't take anything literally. And maybe you don't really believe in the Bible. So you have kind of these two um, polar extremes. Um, what I want to suggest to you, when Jesus says, this is my flesh, my flesh is the, the bread and you must eat my flesh. Is Jesus speaking in a literal sense, eat my body? No, there's no way. Like, that, that's, that's silly to think about that. So I want to think about it this way. There's plain literal and figurative literal. Plain literal is, yes, you take something literal. Jesus said something, you, you do that, you obey it, you live according to it. And then there's figurative literal. This is a figurative literal sense. The Bible's filled with this. And I think oftentimes where we go wrong in interpreting Scripture is we don't think carefully or critically enough about what is happening here is another way to think of it is to we read the Bible literarily, literarily, like according to literary genre. That's what I'm trying to say there. I'll just use another phrase. Uh, we read the Bible according to certain, its particular literary genre. So, for example, the Psalms are filled with figurative language. Uh, it describes Jesus or uh, God the Father um, sheltering his people under the shadow of his wings. Is God a chicken? Probably not. But the fact of the matter is, is that he uses this language to describe some form of wings span. Again, it's figurative language to describe God's ability to oversee all things that are transpiring in this broken and hurting world. This is the God that oversees us. So again, it's an idea of thinking through what is happening here. Is this plain or literal or figurative literal? And our job is to discern this. This gets even more intense because we move on into the very next little segment here in verse 52, last one here. How are you guys doing? You guys doing okay? We're almost done. I'm really proud of you. Here we go. Verse 52. Then Jesus, or I'm sorry, then the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how could this man Give us his flesh to eat. You can already see the wheels spinning in their minds. They're freaking out. Is Jesus calling us to become zombies, vampires? What's happening? Verse 53, Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh. So thank you, Jesus, for clearing this up. I mean, this is like shocking. Like, like if, I, if you were Peter or one of the disciples, you pulled Jesus aside at this particular juncture and be like, Jesus, look, this is not helping. Like, they're, they are they are actually thinking you're talking about cannibalism. And what you're saying right now is only feeding that narrative. You are going to get canceled, Jesus. Jesus is like, I know. That's exactly what happens. He gets canceled. And this shows us something really unique about Jesus, the character of Jesus. There are occasions he does not care what you think. That might come as a shock. Especially in our snowflake culture that is deeply, deeply offended by everything. That does not line up with how my sensibilities think the world should be aligned. This doesn't mean that Jesus is cold and callous either. I want to be really careful here. This is not Jesus, the angry, like horrible human being who's out to just purposefully offend people. This is Jesus who's deeply, deeply committed to human beings and human project. But he also realizes that truth has to be communicated. And truth needs to be processed and believed. Is this a hard saying that Jesus says? Absolutely. Do you fully understand it? I don't fully understand it. There's things about it that are just like, man, could Jesus reword this better or differently? According to my understanding, yeah, but I'm not God. So I have to believe that whatever it is and however it is that Jesus chose to state this, that this is the right way to do it. 
So it's a, it's a matter of me aligning myself up with what he has to say, even if I do not fully understand it. And you might say, that's hard. And I would say, you're right, that's very hard, because what, this is what lordship is. See, we live in a world today that wants to say, I will follow Jesus if he makes sense to me. I will follow Jesus if I agree with what he has to say about me. That's not, that's not discipleship. That's not what it means to know Jesus as Lord. I want to affirm the fact that it's sometimes very hard to understand what Jesus is saying. And this is one of those occasions. Verse 54 says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up the last day. Again, repeat. Uh, Verse 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, I live because the father so Whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died, the manna. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, referring to his body. And in verse 59, Jesus said these things at the synagogue he taught in Capernaum. And I mentioned this last week, but if you guys have never seen uh, the TV series The Chosen, this, this actually scene right here is really, really powerful because they hear Jesus talk and at some point they're just they don't know what to do with jesus so they take him outside of the city and it's all part of kind of a, a larger scene of the ministry there in capernaum so again true or false does jesus sometimes say things that are confusing or hard to follow absolutely so you might say there's a lot that i don't understand about jesus some things that he says are extremely confusing i would affirm that I would say yeah absolutely yes i've been following jesus since i was almost 16 years old for a long majority of my life i've read the bible a lot and there's still a lot of things i read i'm just like man i that that doesn't resonate well with me and i don't fully understand that doesn't make a lot of sense to me but that does not inhibit necessarily my ability to trust jesus in spite of what i do or do not understand that's what it means to follow jesus if we wait for full understanding and comprehension and apprehension of what Jesus has to say before to become a prerequisite before I'm going to give my life to Jesus, then really what we're simply saying is I want to be in charge. I want to manage Jesus. I want to manage what he says and intake what I only agree with and cancel and filter and get rid of anything else that that does not resonate with me or anything that kind of bucks the system of the cultural sensitivities around us, I want to get rid of those things. And what I want to suggest to you is that that's not what discipleship is. So lastly, as we close, I want to look at this little final thing on the meal. Verse 28 and 29, circle back to this. Then Jesus said to them, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus then answered, this is the work of God that you believe on him who sent, whom he has sent. Verse 44 um, jump on down. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day for it is written in the prophets that they will all be taught by God and everyone who has learned uh, from the father comes to me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. So we see this contrast between those that believe and those that grumble. And so I think it's important to just kind of pause back, pause and step back and think, where would my heart line up with that? Would my heart look at what Jesus says and find lots to be frustrated with or offended as a result of and pull back? Question is, from that particular juncture, where do you go now? Who, who crafts the new religion that your religious heart 
will need to survive. And what I mean by that is, is we are, we are meaning and purpose junkies. We have to have meaning and purpose in life. And if you lack meaning and purpose in life, you will find some affiliation to affix your heart to in order to find meaning and purpose in life. And at some point it becomes a religion that we craft will be one that you create. But again, that lacks long-term sustainability. But the flip side of that is to believe, to throw ourselves in belief in the one. And the question is, is Jesus trustworthy? Is Jesus trustworthy? I don't know. You gotta, you gotta follow his life. All the way to the point of his death on the cross and his resurrection. And ask yourself, purpose. What did Jesus do that for? What was his purpose? What was his mission? What was his meaning? Well, his purpose was love. He loves you. He knew that you and I have an incurable disease, brokenness, sin, that's, that's impeding us, that's destroying us, that keeps us going back to eating spiritual junk food. There's a radical distinction between something that's life-giving and satiating and satisfying and healthy versus something that just simply fills you up. I can eat an entire bag of Trader Joe's, everything but the elote chips, the entire bag, and they're delicious. Absolutely delicious, and I'm really hungry. But the point of the matter is that does not do anything good for my body. It doesn't help me. I don't feel good about myself. Two hours later, I'm just like, why did I do that? I just kind of want to die. But the point of the matter is is that we are people that feast off of junk food, spiritual junk food, and our souls pay the consequences. We're stressed out. We're filled with anxiety, self-loathing, hatred, Demonization of others, anger, rage, wrath, self-centeredness, egotism. Because we've been feasting off of something that's other than the bread of God. Philip Yancey in his book, I'm done here, uh, in his book called Vanishing Grace, he mentions a survey in which he identifies there are three common phrases that every human being wants to hear in this particular order. I love you. I forgive you, and dinner's ready. I like that. I, we all want to hear, I love you. We all want to hear, I forgive you. You're forgiven. And then dinner's ready. I mean, like, I mean, think about some of the greatest moments in your life. I would guess, venture to guess, they involve a dinner table with people you actually really like. Well, this is exactly what the aim of God is throughout the cosmos is to bring healing to this broken universe that's suffering under the weight of sin. The book of Revelation, chapter 19, verses 6 through 9, I'm actually really truly done here. Like, I know I said, like, circling the plane, and it's about to land right now. So you guys ready? You guys have done really well, by the way. We covered a very lengthy passage of Scripture. And you guys still doing okay? Anybody fell asleep? Right? Both of you? Okay. So we're done here. But I want you to think about, this is the, the final vision, the picture of where... God is taking everything in this universe. I'll just read it to you. Read it over you. Just listen to it. Revelation chapter 19, verse 6. John has this image. And he says, And I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude shouting. Hallelujah. For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb. Language, metaphorical language, figurative language to describe Jesus. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And then ends with this sort of um, 
final act of blessing. How blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Creation ends in a marriage feast, a supper, where God will give himself for us to feast on forever. How satisfying is God? Well, he's eternal. He's the source of everything, every bit of color. He's the, he's, he's the stream from which every color comes from, every flavor, every beauty, every good thing. It all originates from him. And we live in a world today that's in exile from him. So you wonder where that ache in your soul comes from. I'll tell you where that ache in your soul comes from. We are living in exile from the one who made us. And he invites us to come to partake of him, to feast upon him. And he will give us life. And I'm done. I want to invite you all to stand. And I want to pray over us as we conclude. And I want you to think about, if you're here this morning, maybe you are not a Christian. or Maybe you're someone that has been raised in the church. And there is a degree of familiarity that you have about Jesus. My hope this morning would be that you would think about, again, the claims of Jesus. And not just simply the claims, but the person of Jesus. It's about a person. We are made for relationship. We are made for God. He loves us. He's for us. So I'm going to pray for us. So Jesus, right now, we confess to you our sin, our brokenness, our needs. We bring this to you, and we lay them at your feet. If you're here this morning right now, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus, or maybe you have at some point known Jesus but wandered, or maybe at some point you started and somewhere along the way you've stalled, Right now, if you're in this place and you're recognizing the need to feast upon this one who gave himself for you, I want to invite you to just, maybe in your own heart, just call upon God. Scripture's so clear. It says he's not far away. We don't have to go climb some ladder. We don't have to do some sort of like brave feat in order to get God to see us. All we have to do is come humbly and cast our cares upon him. Confess our sin before him and he will respond. He's near, even near as the words that come out of your mouth. So Father, right now we just bring ourselves to you. We pray that you would transform us, make us new. God, as we leave, as we scatter right now, go back into our world, our lives, our neighborhoods, our families, wherever it is that we're going. God, empower us to be people that live for the glory of your name. We need you, Jesus. You alone have the words of life. We need you, Jesus. You alone satisfy. Satisfy the longing of every single person that's in this room. By moving us to turn towards you, we pray. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.